Welcome again to this episode of the Rare Possessions Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Galetti, and with me is Jared Riddick from Book of Mormon Central. Happy to be sitting here. We are on part three of our little mini-series from B.H. Roberts in the Improvement Era entitled A Nephite's Commandments to His Three Sons. And this particular one, we've previously gone over actually Helaman and Shiblon, and now this episode and our next one are going to go over the uh, council to his son, Corianton, who was the arguably the black sheep of the three. You could say that. It's the only one that warrants a part the first and part the second from Roberts. So. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, there's quite a bit that could be said here. And interesting, I, I didn't bring this up before, but it struck me as I was reading this again. Why does he say a Nephite's commandments to his three sons? Why not just Alma? I wondered that too. It seems interestingly vague for some reason. I think maybe to bring the attention to the sons and not so much Alma. Okay. Maybe. And also to it's make it more relatable, Ma- make it more relatable as a father, making this a more of a generic, this is father to son. Fathers, you can use this for your sons as well. Okay. I so. like that. All right. Well, right off the bat, we uh, we can say that Corianton was definitely the one that caused his father to be most the most heartache. concerned about his spiritual situation. But what do we know about Corianton before this? That he, uh, he was an intelligent young man. Obviously... Smart and uh, Roberts draws a distinction between uh, smarts and wisdom. Yeah, in this article, but obviously good enough to to have been called on a mission by his father to go with it, to accompany him to the land of Antionum to the Zoramites. It seemed like those descriptions that you gave and that we'll read about is smart, not wisdom, and all those kinds of things. And it seems to be that he has great capacities, great skills, but everything that he has is very undisciplined version of it. Yeah. And so part of the message here being that that he seems undisciplined. And the, the question comes up right off the bat as to how Alma could have two good sons and one that seemed to be so out of shape with, with the other two. And B.H. Roberts gives a commentary that has some very interesting theological implications. Mm-hmm. I want to give this brief quote, and then we can kind of discuss what this might be implying as well as what it says. The quote is, the earthly father, good or bad, is not the primary source from whence comes the character of his son. He does not create that character. Neither does the mother. Modify it, they may. Impress some characteristics upon it, physical or mental, they do. They fix upon it, doubtless, some impressions peculiar to themselves. For large observation and the experience of the race confirms the fact, but create the character of son or daughter wholly or even primarily, never. At most, parentage but modifies character. It never creates it. So that's a a, a bit of a theological kind of pre-earth life carrying over into this life kind of talk. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I want want to tread carefully with this subject. Yes. It does resonate uh, LDS theology in terms of the creation. We don't believe in creation ex nihilo. We believe in we believe that creation, that matter was organized, not brought forth from nowhere. That intelligence is intelligence is, is eternal. This personality is eternal, and the heavenly Father, being the greatest among us, organized things in a way that th- those intelligences around him could progress. And so I, th- I see where Elder Roberts is coming from with this view of parenthood, and he's trying to remind us that don't rag on Alma too bad. <laughs> um, I mean, many righteous parents have had children that break their hearts. That's maybe meant to give us some sympathy and identification with Alma the Younger. Yeah, there's some definite—I I, I see his point of view as, as doctrinally well-founded. 
not a way we've considered the doctrine usually, but I think it's well-founded. Well, and again, he, he's trying to get the spirit here that it is possible for a righteous parent to do all things right and someone else still chooses not to follow the teachings of that parent. I think what it comes down to, that's where he's trying to say, well, that's where the point where he's trying to get to. But when he says men come to this earth are what they are primarily by, uh, by reason of what they were in that existence before they tabernacled in the flesh, it almost also implies that they weren't good in the preexistence. Which has some interesting because you know we know that they chose to follow God, right? And so, so there's a there's a point at which even B. H. Roberts would say there are aspects of their character, challenges to their being here, to which the plan of salvation is to work out. It's to work through these these character things that we all had before we came here. But he's not implying that certain people are predisposed to be evil, and that's just how they're going to be no matter what the parents say. I don't think that's what he's trying to imply. But there are just certain factors, certain personality traits that we have Trials. to understand are independent and perhaps even necessary to that individual's plan of salvation. And God knows them, knows their challenges, and will help put an Alma in their way to help them to find their way. In fact, I don't know if it's, I can't remember if it's in this article or the next one where there was some counsel given from Alma to listen to your brothers. Let your brothers guide you. part two. Is it part two? Yeah. I think so. So one of the other things that I thought was really interesting about this was he he really, Alma knows how to drill into his children Mm -hmm. with love, which is kind of a lost art. He's exemplifying some DNC 121 principles there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so he was he's able to show his son Corianton, I'm not trying to show you all the things you're doing wrong because it's fun to point that out. Because I'm, I'm doing it to try and help you. Yeah, exactly. There's also one last thing, and I, I don't want to say that I noticed that Elder Roberts seemed to get a little upset, maybe, or short at the end of this article, but he has a— like I, I'm glad you noticed that, too. The quote is, I have no patience— with those who seek to discount the value of moral precepts and the force of godly admonitions by the air-sniffing, sneering expressions, platitudes, commonplaces. Let not the youth of Zion who read these words allow such comments to rob the advice of Alma to Corianton of its beauty or value. I think it resonates to what he was saying to Shiblon about small and simple things. Like, yeah. This might seem simple. This might seem small. Doesn't mean it's not true. And I am done with people who suggest otherwise is what he is getting across. Yeah. Don't discount what's being said here in any yeah. way. Now we're going to do a reading of this article. This is, uh, I guess, Corianton part one, but part three of the series, if that's not too confusing. And we're going to do a reading of that article following up with uh, next week. We'll do the conclusion of mm-hmm. this four-part miniseries from B.H. Roberts. See you then. A Nephite's Commandments to His Three Sons by B. H. Roberts Part 3, Corianton In Corianton we have a character altogether different from the other sons of Alma, Helaman and Shiblon, Corianton's elder brothers. So different indeed that one marvels that they can be children of the same father. The marked difference leads one to almost ask, Can the same fountain send forth both sweet water and bitter? Can one tree bear both bad and good fruit? How is it that the tame olive tree bears wild fruit? That is, 
How does it come to pass that good parents, wise, noble, and honorable fathers, sometimes seem cursed with worthless sons? These questions are easy to ask, but difficult to answer, unless we say that the figures of speech used in the questions above do not meet, even for purposes of illustration, the phenomenon of a righteous father begetting a son whose every inclination seems bent towards evil. Such a father is not as a good fountain sending forth sweet and bitter water, nor a tree bearing both bad and good fruit. Such sons are not as bitter waters from a sweet fountain, nor as bad fruit from a good tree. By which I mean that the earthly father, good or bad, is not the primary source from whence comes the character of his son. He does not create that character, neither does the mother. Modify it they may impress some characteristics upon it, physical or mental, they do. They fix upon it, doubtless, some impressions peculiar to themselves, for large observation and the experience of the race confirms the fact, but create the character of son or daughter wholly, or even primarily, never. At most, parentage but modifies character. It never creates it. Men who come to this earth are what they are primarily by reason of what they were in that existence before they tabernacled in the flesh. Man, by which I mean not the fleshy tabernacle in which the real man lives, but the being who possesses the aggregation of qualities making up the intelligence and character of the man. The true man, the art man, or ah man, he was not created, he was not made, but as eternal as God is, and is what he is by virtue of the innate qualities of his nature modified by the cycles of experiences through which he has passed before he reached earth, modified by his earth parentage too, among other things, but not created by that. Not all the modifying influences of earth parentage can remove the characteristics possessed by the spirit before his birth, and there may be some characteristics not touched at all by the influences of earth parentage. Hence, we have Cain, born to Adam, and then Adam, perhaps, none has been more righteous. Ham, born to Noah, Ishmael to Abraham, Esau to Isaac, Reuben to Jacob, Absalom to David Nay, David himself to Jesse, Laman and Lemuel to Lehi, Corianton to Alma. And why to the virtuous are often born the vicious, we know not, but doubtless for some wise purpose and perhaps because of relationships and compacts existing in the pre-existent life not now known to us. Corianton was different. I say from both Helaman and Shiblon. He was doubtless quick of intellect, though really of less intellectual power than his older brothers. Smart, I should say, rather than wise. Brilliant, rather than profound. Moved by impulse instead of reason, and governed by feeling, rather than by a sound judgment. As a result of such a combination of qualities, he was evidently vain and self-sufficient, impatient of restraint, and sought to walk independently of the experience, counsels, and sounder judgment of his older brethren. Moreover, he was not more than half convinced of the truth of the gospel. On a number of leading and fundamental doctrines, he was skeptical. He evidently had enough knowledge to doubt, but not enough to believe. At the Pyrian spring he had evidently taken shallow droughts enough to intoxicate the brain, but had not yet taken the deeper drought that would sober him. For it was as true then as it is now, that a little learning, a little philosophy, 
inclines men's hearts to skepticism, but larger learning and depth of philosophy inclines men's hearts to faith. That the possession of such qualities of mind and following their natural bent would lead Corianton into serious trouble, especially when not counterpoised by the influence of a profound faith in God and the restraints of the gospel, might easily have been predicated. And so indeed it came to pass. In the early days of the Nephite Republic, one Zoram turned away from the gospel as known to the Nephites and founded an apostate sect which took his name, that is, they were called Zoramites. They had gathered together in a land bordering on the east seashore, south of the land Jershon, inhabited by the people of Ammon. Be it remembered while immediately on their south border was the land most densely populated by the Lamanites. The land the Zoramites inhabited they called Antionum. In addition to the desire Alma had for the salvation of the souls of these dissenters from the Nephite faith, was also the fear that they, on occasion, would open negotiations with their near neighbors on the south, the Lamanites, and inaugurate another war against the Republic. For it was a characteristic of all apostates from the Nephites, when the latter themselves were righteous and in the faith of the gospel, that sooner or later they joined the Lamanites and stirred them up to war against the Nephites. Thus, in the Western Hemisphere, as in the Eastern, before the coming of the Messiah, as afterwards, the gospel brought not peace, but a sword. And then, as since, however, the sword was found in the hands of unbelieving and not in the hands of the saints, except in defense of their own lives and liberties. Both these incentives then, a desire to save the souls of the Zoramites and also to prevent them from forming an alliance with the Lamanites, led Alma to undertake a mission among them for their conversion. On this mission, he was accompanied by his sons Shiblon and Corianton, several of the sons of Mosiah, and Amulek and Zeezrom. It was unfortunate for Corianton that the teachings of the Zoramites were calculated to foster his own doubts and strengthen his own unbelief while their aristocratic manner of life and their exclusiveness and pride would suit the tendencies of his own vain and shallow nature. How much contact with the Zoramites contributed to the skepticism of Corianton, or how much of that he brought with him when entering their land, may not be determined. But in their midst, he found a congenial atmosphere for the growth of his unbelief and the gratification of his vanity. The humility required of a minister of Christ had become irksome to him, some success, perhaps, in preaching the word, for it often happens that such natures as Coriantans have a gift of speech that captivates and gives a show of brilliancy and wisdom which is not really theirs, led him to boast of his own strength and wisdom. Pride ever goeth before a fall, and a haughty spirit before destruction. The measure of the Spirit of God which hitherto had accompanied Coriantan, notwithstanding his disposition and follies, now departed from him. He became infatuated with the beauty and fell a victim to the wiles of a harlot named Isabel and followed her into Siron, a land bordering on the possession of the Lamanites. How long he stayed there, what folly he was guilty of, to what extent he sinned, what circumstances led to his awakening, by what means he was induced to join again his sorrow-stricken father and brother, we do not know. But that he did break away from the spell of the siren, that he did return to his duty, and join his missionary companions, and afterwards became active and useful in the ministry, is true. However deep his transgression, he evidently did not become hardened in sin, nor lost to the blessed influence of repentance. 
But whether that repentance came about by discovering the hollowness of Isabel's protestations of love, her disgusting sensuality and the unsatisfying nature of sinful pleasures, or whether the remembered sorrow of a distracted father who was reviled by the Zoramites because of the waywardness of his son, the stoning of his brother Shiblon in the streets of the chief city of the Zoramites, and his subsequent imprisonment, whether it was one or the other of these series of facts, or both of them combined, that turned him from his evil course, or the wonderful and effectual working of the grace of God in response to the fervent prayers of a righteous father that wrought the good thing, one may not know. But turn away from the evil course he did, and now our chief concern is to know what commandments, that is, what counsels would a father give to such a son, just snatched as a brand from the burning. First of all, he begins by setting before Corianton the enormity of his sin. Yet he approaches the subject skillfully, like the great teacher he is. His tone is gentle, for he is in sympathy with the young man, however much he may despise his sin. I have somewhat more to say to thee than what I said unto thy brother Shiblon. For behold, have ye not observed the steadiness of thy brother, his faithfulness, and his diligence in keeping the commandments of God? Behold, has he not set a good example for thee? A noble exordium this, and worthy the matter to follow. Here we have a gentle reproof for the past, and an object lesson pointed out in the steadfastness of the elder brother. And when Alma exalted the quality of steadfastness, as exhibited in the noble character of Shiblon, he probed to the very bottom of the weakness in Corianton's character. The father continues, Thou didst not give so much heed unto my words as did thy brother, among the people of the Zoramites. Now this is what I have against thee. Thou didst go on unto boasting in thy strength and thy wisdom. And this is not all, my son. Thou didst do that which was grievous unto me. For thou didst forsake the ministry, and did go over into the land of Siron, among the borders of the Lamanites, after the harlot Isabel. Yea, she did steal away the hearts of many. But this was no excuse for thee, my son. Thou shouldest have tended to the ministry wherewith thou wast entrusted. Know ye not, my son, that these things are an abomination in the sight of the Lord? Yea, most abominable above all sins, save it be the shedding of innocent blood, or denying the Holy Ghost? For behold, if ye deny the Holy Ghost when it once has place in you, and ye know that ye deny it, behold, this is a sin which is unpardonable. Yea, and whosoever murdereth against the light and knowledge of God, it is not easy for him to obtain forgiveness. Yea, I say unto you, my son, that it is not easy for him to obtain a forgiveness. And now, my son, I would to God that ye had not been guilty of so great a crime. I would not dwell upon your crimes to harrow up your soul if it were not for your good. But behold, ye cannot hide your crimes from God, and except ye repent, they will stand as a testimony against you at the last day. Now, my son, I would that ye would repent and forsake your sins and go no more after the lust of your eyes, but cross yourself in all these things. For except ye do this, ye can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. O remember, and take it upon you, and cross yourself in these things. This is a masterly probing of the young man's sin. No trifling here, yet how full of love is this. I would not dwell upon your crimes to harrow up your soul if it were not for your good. And then the justification of this thoughtfulness of treatment. 
ye cannot hide your crimes from God, and except ye repent, they will stand against you at the last day. What's the use of shuffling then? Be sure of it. God will not be mocked. A man's sin will find him out, here or hereafter. And if unatoned for or unrepented of, the sinner must face and answer the just demands of God's moral law. There is no escape. Some men's sins go beforehand to judgment, and some men they follow after. But come to judgment, they will. The whole of the Father's indictment against the Son, however, is not in yet. There are other evils and faults of character to be dealt with. This slip with Isabel is but an incident in his life. Scarlet it may be, and a blotch that will remain a blotch, for what deep wound ever healed without a scar. Still, it is but an incident, and there yet remained in the young man the characteristics capable of producing another such incident, and yet another, until adown the steep sides of demoralization the young man might plunge to his utter ruin. The inclination to pride, self-sufficiency, arrogance, love of luxury which riches bring, all this must be corrected, and hence, Alma continues, And I command you to take it upon you to counsel your elder brothers in your undertakings. For behold, thou art in thy youth, and ye stand in need to be nourished by your brothers, and give heed to their counsel. Suffer not yourself to be led away by any vain or foolish thing. Suffer not the devil to lead away your heart again after those wicked harlots. Behold, O my son, how great iniquity ye brought upon the Zoramites, for when they saw your conduct, they would not believe in my words. And now the Spirit of the Lord doth say unto me, Command thy children to do good, lest they lead away the hearts of many people to destruction. Therefore I command you, my son, in the fear of God, that ye refrain from your iniquities, that ye turn to the Lord with all your mind, might, and strength, that ye lead away the hearts of no more to do wickedly, but rather return unto them. Acknowledge your faults, and retain that wrong which ye have done. Seek not after riches, nor the vain things of this world, for behold, you cannot carry them with you. Are these principles of moral conduct and these admonitions only truisms? Doubtless. But how forcibly are they here put? The multiplication table is a series of truisms, but what mighty results and calculations may be brought out by its employment? The daily bread is commonplace, but it nourishes the daily life and preserves it. I have no patience with those who seek to discount the value of moral precepts and the force of godly admonitions by the air-sniffing, sneering expressions, platitudes, commonplaces. Let not the youth of Zion who read these words allow such comments to rob the advice of Alma to Corianton of its beauty or value. Thank you for listening to A Nephite's Commandments to His Three Sons, Part 3, Corianton, by B.H. Roberts. To explore items like this and others found in the Book of Mormon Central archives, visit archives.bookofmormoncentral.org. Tune in each week for another episode of the Rare Possessions Podcast.